There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back to the Titans of Food Service podcast. As always, thank you so much for joining me on another episode. Please, if you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoy this episode, if you could leave a five-star review, whether you're listening on Spotify or Apple podcast, wherever you listen to your podcast, if you could leave a five-star review, that would truly mean the world. Today, I welcome Guy Rigby. And we're going to dive into the whole world of luxury hotels. He started at the Ritz Hotel early in his career, and he eventually moved into the Four Seasons, becoming the vice president of food and beverage for the Americas. And his journey around the world, working in Houston and Tokyo and Bangkok and New York, it's a really fun story. So let's go ahead and jump right into it and welcome Guy. Guy, welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. I've been looking forward to our conversation. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to meet with me. And yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Very nice to be uh, to meet you and uh, get this going. So why don't we, I usually like to start off with just the basics of when I have guests come on to the show, kind of the, how did you get into the food and beverage industry? What, what was your starting point? Yeah. <laughs> I once wanted to be a lawyer. Um, when I was at school, uh, but I wasn't clever enough. <laughs> How fortuitous was that? Because I, I've had a, a, a fun career bouncing around the world, and it's been very good to me. And um, so, no, actually, I did want to go to law school when I was in England, and um, I didn't get the grades. So instead of sort of redoing all my exams, sort of rethought my life. And my mother used to go. We lived in Worcestershire, and she used to go to this uh, hotel school in Birmingham in England where they served the students and co- and, uh, who were cooking and serving offered a lunch for £3.50 and she would go with her friends and they would have lunch and they would go shopping. And so she said, uh, and I was always hanging around the kitchen watching what she was doing and, and I'd worked in a pub many, many uh, years ago just before that time when I don't actually think I was legally allowed to drink, but I was tall, so I got away with it. <laughs> and I really loved being behind the bar, and they, they knew that I had a good time that summer working for a friend's pub. So they put two and two together, and mother said, you know, why don't you consider the hotel business? And that's where it all started. Wow. All right. All right. When you got into the hotel business, what was your, your first stop? Well, you know, I was at hotel school in uh, Cheltenham in England, and I was okay. working at a hotel just, you know, to earn beer money and pay rent at a hotel called the Greenway Hotel in Cheltenham. And it's a country house hotel. And the owner was a chap called Tony Elliott. And he took an interest in me, uh, fortunately. And he drove me up to London one day and introduced me to all his chums in the hotel business. And the most important meeting was uh, with uh, Michael Duffel, who was then the managing director of the Ritz Hotel. And uh, I was very nervous meeting him. He was uh, an imposing uh, chap running an imposing hotel. And uh, he offered me a job as a receptionist, uh, which I did for about a year. And then he promoted me to assistant food and beverage manager. And I worked for another mentor, a chap called Ralph Birnbaum, 
who was a, a German gentleman who'd come over to England after the war, right after the war, and got a job at the Savoy as a waiter, worked his way up to a head waiter at the Savoy. And one of the guys who was working as a, a server and a busboy um, under him uh, while he was head waiter was this chap, Michael Duffel, who was going through the Savoy training program. And Michael eventually became the managing director of the Savoy, I'm uh, sorry, of the Ritz, and hired Ralph as his food and beverage manager. So um, I worked for Ralph, and he was, you know, he's one of these old school guys. You, you, mm -hmm. I was in at breakfast time, you know, bailing the folks in room service out and making toast and setting trays up and um, putting butters on trays, making sure there were flowers there and uh, running trays up the elevator to the guest rooms. Um, and then I was still there, you know, uh, at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, helping the head waiters of uh, sort of private events and uh, catching up with correspondents. So very, very long hours because he was an old-fashioned kind of guy. But, you know, he taught me um, all the basics, really. It was a great education. Can we actually take a step back? Hotel school. What is that? How do you get into that? Here in, I live in California, and I believe, I, I've never heard of a hotel school. I've heard of people getting hospitality degrees at, you know, uh, college. But what is a hotel school? Well, it's the same thing, really. It's just the old-fashioned okay. term, really, uh, Nick. Um, you know, you've got... Uh, Cornell offering a hospitality program. And um, I think in Europe, you know, in the old days, they used to go to the Swiss hotel schools, and it's basically the same thing. And you mentioned a few people that were kind of uh, mentors to you. What were some of the lessons that they taught you over the years? Goodness, so many people taught me different things. So in the early days, uh, Michael Duffel, who was the managing director of the Ritz, he, he'd sort of instilled in me, well, A, um, hard work, be, you know, the whole essence of hospitality, uh, that the guest is there to be entertained, to be taken care of. We're there to provide that service for them. And, you know, he, the, the Ritz, um, it was, it was a classic old fashioned hotel where whatever the guest wanted, the guest received. And for sure, we had some very difficult guests who we had to appease. We were trying to create an exceptional product with the very best food, an extraordinary wine list, a magnificent cocktail bar. Tea at the Ritz, of course, were legendary. Um, it had to be um, absolutely perfect. I mean, you know, every assistant manager in food and beverage runs around looking for teaspoons. I did the same. Um, you know, the teapots had to be warmed before we made the tea and uh, uh, the milk had to be the right temperature and the quality of the tea and the amount of tea we put into the pot, all these things. It was details, details, details. So uh, back in those days, it was all about uh, quality and style. You know, and then fast forward when I joined Four Seasons Hotels, which happened a short while later, uh, that's when I really learned about leadership. Not only, you know, uh, excellence in service standards, but um, leadership and consistency. And that was a whole different education altogether when I joined Four Seasons. I'm sure. When you're at the Ritz, did they, did they have systems and processes in place that ensured a consistent, you know, high-quality experience for the guests? Because I can only imagine, you kind of hinted at it, there would be some guests that are more difficult than others. And when people come to the Ritz, they, they expect a, a certain degree of quality and service. 
So what were some of the ways that you and your team were able to, you know, be consistent? Yeah, well, it was old school. Um, you know, you weren't allowed on the floor. You had to go through a couple of weeks of training as a server before you were allowed on the floor. Um, I mean, nowadays they're so short staff, they would just get thrown into the fire, you know. Um, but um, we were very, very detail-oriented. You know, it was it was silver service in those days. It wasn't, you know, you weren't bringing plates of food to the table uh, if you were doing a private event. You were um, approaching the table with a silver salver of a rack of lamb or you would... Uh, you would carve a Dover sole, uh, debone a Dover sole at the table. Um, it was classic old-fashioned service in those days, and uh, it had to be learned. And um, if mistakes were made, uh, we would compensate the guests. It's as simple as that. And so we didn't want to do a lot of that. So we trained and trained and trained and overtrained new servers and new bartenders and new cooks in the kitchen uh, until mm-hmm. they had it absolutely right. Um, so it was, and, and then there were written standards, you know, we would bring new servers in and we would send them home with pages and pages of standards and, uh, then we would test them on them. Wow. Uh, it was simple. And if they didn't pass the test, you either had to come back a couple of days later having relearned the, the standards, but yeah, I mean, it, we, we would sit them down and give them a, a test and they had to know how many minutes it, they were allowed to uh, a guest it, how long it took them before they would serve their orange juice and how many minutes it was before they were served their main course and um, what temperature the butter needed to be served at and what temperature the hot water needed to be uh, when it was uh, put into the tea in order to infuse the tea properly so it was details 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 and everybody had to learn that yeah i'm sure it will when it came to the hiring process and bringing on new people, is there a certain characteristics in people that you recognize that they can do this job or they cannot do this job? No, I mean, there's no surprise that we were looking for people with a great attitude. Certainly in those days, you weren't going to get into a, a job at a hotel like the Ritz unless you had uh, a CV, as you say, a resume over here. Uh, um, a resume showing some previous experience in fine dining and and really great quality restaurants. Um, And because of the reputation of the Ritz, we weren't short of applicants in that respect. And then we would get a lot coming over from Europe as well. So um, I remember the general manager of the restaurant, the Ritz restaurant, was a, a German gentleman who was extremely polished. The uh, assistant general manager was uh, French and uh, he, he was there for a long, long time. And they were just, you know, they lived. That was their career. They lived to be restaurant managers. It wasn't a stepping stone to something else. That was their career. They were proud to be a restaurant manager. And uh, when they opened the restaurant, you know, it was like the, the start of a, a show at the West End or on Broadway. You know, we did the pre-shift. Everybody went to their stations, we opened the doors and we waited for the guests to come in. I mean, it was literally like that. And the brigade were ready down in the kitchen and they all had white toques on. And um, I mean, it was, it sounds old fashioned, but it was a little bit in those days. And, yeah. uh, but it made everybody sort of arch their back a little bit and stand with their shoulders straight. And here we go, guys. Yeah, no, that's incredible. What about when it came to the food and beverage uh, offerings there at the Ritz? How would you ensure that they align with the brands or with the Ritz's, you know, luxury brand. 
Yeah, so back in those days, there were, um, you know, the Ritz in London had nothing to do with the Ritz-Carlton. There was the Ritz in Paris. There was the Ritz in, uh, I think, in Madrid, and then the Ritz in London. So there were really only three Ritz hotels. The Ritz in Paris had been opened by Cesar Ritz, and then he built the Ritz in London, and uh, he built that from ground up. Basically, the Ritz in Paris, as you know, was a conversion of some other buildings. Um, so there wasn't, uh, there weren't sort of corporate writ standards. There was the writs in London standard, yeah. and um, the restaurant served French cuisine. I mean, it's, it's uh, all fine dining restaurants in those days were serving French cuisine, and we were doing the same. But, but you know, uh, we had a, a chef when I was there, an uh, entertaining chap called Michael Quinn, who was uh, yeah. British, and um, he was a brilliant, brilliant chef. A very charismatic guy, and the, the, he was very good for PR as well. The, the guests loved him. He was a great conversationalist. But he, you know, he, he he grew up cooking French food, and so the sure. menu at the Ritz restaurant was was French cuisine. So going from the Ritz, and then you mentioned you moved over to the Four Seasons. Why did you make that move? Um, well, there was a little in between. I, I'd opened a country house hotel down in Sussex okay. when I was in my mid-twenties. Uh, I was the resident manager opening this hotel. Um, that was an extraordinarily beautiful hotel owned and operated, uh, uh, owned by a, a Canadian developer. And it, uh, it won uh, a lot of awards. And I would probably still be in the country house hotel business, but there was a huge hurricane in the south of England back in 1980, goodness me, I think six, and it devastated our hotel. We lost so many trees, we had lost power, we lost telephone lines, and uh, it was really a disaster. And then Michael Duffel, who I'd stayed in touch with, mm-hmm. said, um, listen, dear boy, I'm going to go to the United States to open a hotel with Cunard. Cunard owned the Ritz in London, and why don't you come with me? You can't stay in small hotels for the rest of your life. You need to have an international hotel career. So that sounded appealing. So I followed him to Philadelphia, and we opened a hotel there called Hotel Atop the Bellevue. But really, you know, the best hotel in Philadelphia by far at the time was the Four Seasons. Uh, And so I I discovered Four Seasons. I um, found out more about um, who they were, what they uh, stood for. And uh, I wanted to work for that company. So um, I, I applied, and um, the only job they had available at the time was food and beverage director down in Houston, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I got the map out and had a look, where's Houston? That's down there. And so I packed my bags, and I joined Four Seasons in 1990 as food and beverage director in Houston. Wow. What were the differences, if any, between the British experience in hotels versus the American one? Uh, I'll, I'll talk immediately about Four Seasons because when yeah. I joined that company, I remember sitting in my very first morning briefing. There was a chap called Francisco Gomez who was the GM. And um, I was just astonished. They had every member of the executive committee. They had the department head who had been manager on duty over the weekend. And they had the head housekeeper, chief engineer, director of rooms, front office manager. And we were all sitting listening to the report of uh, the department head who'd been on duty over the weekend. And I've never heard, had never heard anything so detailed. that um, They would walk from the top of the building to the bottom of the building and record every chip of paint. This department head 
it had children in the room. They, there were standards for children's, uh, for how you set a room up for children. You know, every socket had to be plugged with a kid-friendly what do you ever call it, stopper, so that the kids don't mm-hmm. poke their fingers in and become electrocuted. The kids' food had to be absolutely right on room service tray, etc., etc. Um, and it, to me, it was extraordinary. I walked away thinking, wow, these guys really get it. And a large part of the meeting was celebrating and recognizing certain employees who had gone above and beyond during that weekend. So I immediately got the sense that this company is really focused on their employees. Um, whereas you know, it's not as though that hadn't happened with other hotels that I'd worked for, but there was a huge focus on it at Four Seasons all of a sudden. This became very clear right away. And then uh, the, the focus on the guests was extraordinary as well. You know, things, little glitches that had happened during the weekend, the things that the hotel did in order to rescue that the, the poor experience, rescue the hotel, uh, make sure the guest was sort of showered with attention. You know, the restaurant would make sure the front desk knew what had happened so the front desk could um, mention this to the guest when they checked out. Oh, Mr. Rigby, we understood that your cocktails were a bit delayed when you sat down for dinner last night and you mentioned to the restaurant, we're terribly sorry about that and we hope the rest of your stay was enjoyable. Duty manager gets called, they apologize again. I think, whoa, I mean, these guys are on it. <laughs> and so immediately I was sort of aware it's detail, detail, detail. These guys take care of the employees. If the employees aren't taking care of the guests, nobody else will. So let's make sure our employees are treated well, they're encouraged, they're motivated, they're recognized. It was full circle. The whole thing made a lot of sense to me. Uh, and the standards, 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 and I got into it. I, I said, "Yeah, this is this is the way it should be." At the time when you went down to Houston, how long had that property been in operation before you arrived? I'm gonna. I, I have to double check. I think about ten years. And what was you mentioned that you had opened a location prior to this? What was that experience like? Kind of going from the ground up. Yeah. So I'd opened a hotel in uh, in Sussex in England. Yeah. And it was a 21-room luxury country house hotel. Similar in a way to the Greenway, where I'd started my hotel career when I was at hotel school. But yeah, this was... Um, I didn't have standards. <laughs> I was writing all the standards. I was training every employee. I never worked as hard in my life. Yeah, it was hard, hard work, and we made a lot of mistakes. But um, I had a very, very good assistant manager. His name was Caroline, and she'd come from a very well-known hotel in the south of England called the Grave Time Manor. And people who experienced in the UK will have heard of that hotel. And fortunately, she really took over the front desk reservations and sort of guest services, and I focused on... Uh, obviously the food and beverage side, uh, and, and I was sort of a uh, resident manager. But it was lead by example. Um, yeah. I hired people, and they had to follow me. Caroline would hire people on the front desk. They would follow her. We were writing standards as we were going. Yeah, that, that that's not the way to open a hotel. <laughs> 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 that was hard work. Yeah, I'm sure. And then when you're at the Four Seasons, what was your day-to-day life like at that point? 
yeah, I became very structured. You know, you would. Uh-huh. I'm an early riser, so I, I enjoy getting up early and uh, walking the hotel. But you know, you would start with your morning briefing. I would always be wandering around the restaurant at breakfast, wandering around housekeeping, checking on. Uh, there would be a, a sort of early morning pre-shift for the housekeeping staff, which was fun to attend. Uh, and then would be the uh, the daily briefing, and you know, you would you would discuss arrivals for the day and problems and glitches from the day before. And so there was a lot of structure, uh, a lot more structure than I'd ever had uh, previously. And uh, so, um, yeah, it was a it was a fantastic training. And as um, you know, Four Seasons are renowned for their training. And as a as a food and beverage director going in, there was a, a very detailed and structured training programs so that I was mm-hmm. spending time with each department head, each division head. They were explaining what they were doing to me. The general manager was very generous of his time. He stayed very close to me as I was new to Four Seasons and new to that role. So um, it became very clear that, uh, you know, there was, a, a, there was a structure to everything. And sure. uh, so uh, I, felt, I felt secure, but I also knew that um, I was surrounded by uh, really exceptional people. Um, and, and not that I hadn't before, but these people were exceptional in so many different levels. They, they, they were exceptional in the way that they treated their staff. They were exceptional in business. They were exceptional in f- following up on service standards. They were exceptional in the way that they dealt with the guests directly. And um, so I, I've always... I've always wanted to surround myself by people who are better than me um, because it's forced me to learn. And fortunately, in Four Seasons, uh, that was not difficult because <laughs> that company is full of very brilliant people. Uh, and so all the bosses I ever had uh, were vastly better than I ever was and ever will be. So it was just joyful for me to learn from these guys, from these people. And obviously with a with a leader like Gizzy Sharp, someone who was so extraordinarily humble yet so brilliant in the things that he was doing and the culture he created for the company. For those of us who were lucky enough to work in that company um, had, a, had a mentor, had someone who was visionary and who we could look up to. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was a turning point in my career, and I spent 26 years with that company. Wow. And Izzy Sharp, I'm not familiar with him. Who is he? Oh, he's the founder of Four Seasons Hotels. Yeah. And he's uh, still the chairman of the company in his 90s. And, um, you know, he um, was an extraordinary individual. Uh, And, you know, he, it wasn't just about opening great hotels that had fantastic services. Um, It became very clear to him early on that Four Seasons had to have a very, very strong employee culture. It was his vision to create this employee culture. And if you didn't um, get on board with it, uh, you, you, you really didn't have a job with Four Seasons. It's as simple as that. And I always joke with people, you could, if you were a GM in the company, you know, you, might, you, you, could, you would miss your operating profit uh, your budgeted operating profit two or three years in a row, they'd send someone from home office to help you out. You know? <laughs> um, but if you if you missed on your employee culture, and, and we would have management opinion surveys and employee opinion surveys, but if you were missing on that, 
for three years in a row, uh, you were looking for another job. It was as simple as that. So uh, the employee culture was sacred. It was... Um, it was, it was how we treated our people. It's the, the famous golden rule. We treated people the way we want to be treated ourselves. And, and everybody had to buy into that. And it's yeah. not a difficult thing to buy into. I mean, it's, it makes so much sense. And uh, when you're surrounded by so many people who, well, everybody, they all, they all get it. They all, we all bought into the same thing. We all wanted to take care of our employees and our guests in that way. So... Uh, it, it was it was a good thing. Yeah, that's refreshing to hear. My uh, my dad and I we started our own uh, food service sales and marketing company back in 2015, and as we've grown, we we started to do kind of similar to what you were mentioning is employee assessments, where they grade us on tons of different metrics, from compensation to innovation to company culture, and it's really. It was really eye-opening to see and read what people uh, say about the company as a whole. Are they happy here? Do they like the direction of the company? Because they're all thinking it in one way or another, and it's on the leadership team to, to take the time to actually listen to what they have to say. Yeah. So that, that, that's, I mean, that's very important within a business to be successful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> Were other people working at the Four Seasons, were they from all over the globe as well? Or was oh, like, yeah. let's take yeah. all over? Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I, I went from Houston to Tokyo, from Tokyo to Hong Kong, Hong Kong to Toronto, Toronto to Bangkok, Bangkok to Vancouver, uh, to New York to Vancouver, and then back to Toronto. So, and that's relatively common, you know, we're Four Seasons is a global hotel company and they needed people with global experience and the, you know, the guests are from all over the world as well. So it was always an advantage if, uh, if you had experience in Asia and Europe and the Middle East and South America and it was always a huge um, advantage so that you know, we were putting programs together that were perfect for uh, different cultures. When you were in Bangkok versus Houston, what was the differences between the two within the four seasons? You know, the Thai culture is just so wonderful. The people are just so gracious. You know, you could you could go and stay in a three-star hotel in Thailand, and because of the way that you're treated, you'd think you were in a five-star hotel because they, it's just naturally in them to treat you with grace and dignity and humility They'll do anything for you, the Thai people. They're absolutely wonderful, wonderful people. I had a fantastic time there. Um, and they're, they're all incredibly keen. There are no egos there. They all want to help each other out. And that was so refreshing as well. Sure. Um, I remember we traveled. I was in Bangkok as GM, and we traveled to Paris. And, you know, I... I absolutely love Paris, I love the French, but, you know, sometimes they have a reputation of being in the hotel and restaurant business, a little bit uh, snobby. Um, <laughs> and we, we checked in at the Georges Sank. We were we'd overnight flights, so we were very early. And um, it was a very busy time. The room wasn't quite ready. So we went to the br- restaurant, and we were just waiting for them to get a table ready for us to sit. And um, I started a conversation with a hostess on the door. She found out my name, quickly realized, having looked at the arrivals that I was with Four Seasons. And she said, um, uh, Monsieur Ruby, uh, 
I want to tell you, I was with the hotel since the opening, and I've worked in some other hotels in Paris, but oh, it would be Four Seasons is so different. Here, it's fantastic for everybody to love what they do. Nobody is a snob. Nobody is looking down on anybody. This is a culture I want to work with. This is fantastic. And she was so complimentary about, I, I think, the difference between the Four Seasons culture in a place like Paris and maybe the sort of old-fashioned traditional way uh, that it's not it's not everywhere in Paris but there are some places where it's a little bit old-fashioned it was definitely like that when I was at the Ritz for goodness sake in the old days because there you know we had a European stage system and it was a little bit sure. like that but when I went to Thailand there was none of that whatsoever the, it's very easy to train people they'll jump through hoops for you so and they're very very focused on creating extraordinary product. I mean, they don't want anything to be ordinary there. They want everything to be extraordinary. You know, it's an amazing country, amazing Thailand. Uh, and the restaurant scene in Bangkok is just fantastic. Yeah, it's amazing. And um, you can get anything, you know, food, wine, cocktails, you can get anything there. And they, they deliver time and time again. So I was fortunate to work there and had some great people working uh, there as well, who I was very, very lucky to uh, partner with in that hotel. Goodness me, Jim Fitzgibbon was president of Asia Pacific at the time. Such an extraordinary guy, one of the great, great leaders of Four Seasons. Goodness, Max Musto <laughs> was our Italian restaurant manager. He's now in uh, Florence as uh, general manager of Four Seasons still. Goodness, so many people. It was just a fantastic team then. Randy Shimabuku, goodness me, he's uh, where's Randy? You know, one of the great people managers of my life. Uh, I learned so much from him. Uh, I could go on and on, but just fantastic people working there. Would you build a relationship with the with guests in their time there? Like, would they have access to you outside oh, yes. of the hotel? Well, yes. I mean, you know, as a, when you become a, a uh, the general manager, you you. you you have to sort of uh, relate to them, I think, and just occasionally you're going to um, invite them for lunch or for dinner. And um, but uh, you've got a busy job to do. You, <laughs> you can't spend a lot of time hanging out with every guest. I mean, you've got hotels of two or three hundred guest rooms, so you've got a lot of very important guests there. So yeah. you try to keep. You try to. We've got VIPs. We've got special attention guests. So yeah, there are certain people who for for various different reasons, require a little bit more attention, but our job was to take care of everybody in the same way. What about around discretion? You know, I would imagine there's probably some very high net worth individuals, celebrities coming into these properties. How would the Four Seasons ensure that these people are, you know, safe and and can come in here and not be interrupted by outside noises? Yep. It's, it's part of our culture. It's part of the standards that you're yeah. taught during orientation. And you just simply you don't break it. I, I, I'm still unpopular with my children for many, many reasons, but one of the reasons was we were dining at Four Seasons Los Angeles once, and uh, Roger Federer was sitting uh, across the restaurant. And they, re they were into tennis at the time, and they wanted to go and get his autograph. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so I said, oh, Dad. So I said, no, I got to set an example, same as everybody else. So yeah. it's just... Consistency, maintaining uh, that standard all the time. Sure. So you were the general manager, and then where did you, what was kind of the next step from there? 
Yeah, so I'd been in Vancouver, and it was a slightly older property, and um, Four Seasons was at the lease of that property, and we renovated the restaurant. My guy who had been senior vice president of food and beverage, who had put Four Seasons, or put food and beverage on the map, really, for Four Seasons, a wonderful, wonderful man called Alphonse Conrad, he had retired, so there was sort of no oversight in food and beverage, and uh, we were creating a restaurant in Vancouver, and you know, we're pretty much surrounded by water, and so <laughs> seafood was the number one request for people going to the concierge, so we created a seafood restaurant. And uh, Izzy Sharp had invited a restaurant designer called Jennifer Johansson, whose company was called EDG from San Francisco, okay. and they did the interior design. I worked with Jennifer, and she is absolutely brilliant. You know, they, they design restaurants that are relevant, that are um, for today's guest. And they understand the flow of a restaurant. They understand uh, how restaurants should make you feel. They understand how to put drama into a restaurant. So I learned so much from working with Jennifer and her colleagues. Uh, and we, we created a restaurant that um, fortunately was, uh, was popular and it um, was very successful. And so um, Jim Pitsgiven uh, called me one day and said, um, you know, we'd like to uh, actually... My boss at the time, Chris Hart, called me, who, another chap I'd walk off a cliff for, fantastic, fantastic man. And um, he called me and said, well, we, we have a job for you in Toronto. We'd like you to consider coming to Toronto as, uh, to head up the Americas as head of food and beverage, so North and South America. And there were two other colleagues, a chap called Giovanni Denti, who did Europe and the Middle East, and another chap, Brett Patterson, who did uh, Asia Pacific. And sort of we became a team. Yeah, we, the, the whole gig at the time was sort of taking food and beverage from sort of continental dining rooms that had been very fashionable in hotels. Um, you know, the restaurant was a sort of extension of the design of the lobby. And uh, again, it was serving formal cuisine and you could get anything you wanted in the restaurant. And, and many of our restaurants, unfortunately, weren't, that busy. They didn't have a great local following. Some of them were fantastic, but they didn't have a lo great local following. I'm super passionate about restaurants, and, uh, and I wanted all of the restaurants to be really relevant. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to be fun. I wanted them to be busy. I wanted them to be connected to the community. I wanted them to serve fantastic food and have a great beverage list. And obviously, most importantly, I wanted them to make money and be successful. And so that really became uh, our mission statement, that all the restaurants had to be uh, relevant, fun, busy, connected to the community, serve great food, but most of all be profitable. And so we, we, we sat out on a mission. We worked with a lot of third-party restaurant operators, the Michael Minas of the world, the Daniel Boulouz of the world, and so on. And we learned a lot from, by working with them. I mean, that's what they're... they're whole life was making was creating successful restaurants so we continued to learn from them and we just continued to chip away and every time we had a new hotel we would bring in a, a, a separate designer for the restaurant because the architect and the, the the interior designer for the guest rooms may not necessarily have been a specialist in restaurants and if that was the case we bring in a specialist restaurant designer and it would be concept-driven. So we would start with a concept and we would design around the concept and we would hire cooks to support the concept and a general manager to support the concept. So we, 
we were creating independent freestanding restaurants that just happened to be in our hotels. And, and that was really, uh, for us, uh, a, a huge shift. And it takes time, right? Because every hotel has already got an established restaurant. And so we were working on new builds. We were working on existing hotels as, as and when uh, the owner's um, saw fit to support a renovation. We would work with the owners and we would have to sell them on whatever concept we felt was right at that time in that destination in that city or in that uh, resort. And so that's how that whole mood... And then, you know, cocktail and mixology became huge and um, every restaurant needed to have a really vibrant bar. In the good old days, you know, 30 years ago, you would have a separate bar and a separate restaurant. And so uh, nowadays, you can't find a restaurant that doesn't have a great bar in it. So all those things were changes and we had to get on board and, and, and make it happen. Fascinating. Yeah. Just, I'm just curious, were the Four Seasons, are they all corporately owned or is it uh, franchise owned? How's that no, structured? No, it's the the Four Seasons, the management company. Okay, and uh, yeah, the Four Seasons don't don't own any of their properties. Oh, they're in property. Okay, got it. Okay, that makes sense. And how many properties were you overseeing in this current role or in that role? Uh, about forty five altogether in North and South America, and um, you know we would typically have uh, between four and six openings a year in the Americas. And then we'd have another, I don't know, 10 or 15 hotels, uh, either under consideration or under development. So um, I was on an airplane a lot. I can imagine. And how would you ensure that the, the food and beverage offerings were connected to the community for each one of the properties? Yeah, yeah. Um, by, you know, it just became uh, one of the, the core values for us in food and beverage. We just needed to make sure that the restaurant was supporting the community, that we were, in, we, we, our target guest was the local guest. If we got the locals right, the hotel guest would want to come and dine where the locals are eating, right? So if you're staying in a hotel, you go to the concierge and, or you're, you're looking up in, um, on your computer or your phone, your internet, you know, what are the best local restaurants? And we wanted to be listed in those local restaurants. So, yeah, we had to reach out to the local community and we needed to bring them into our restaurant. So everything that we were doing in terms of merchandising, marketing, social media, any local charity that needed to be supported, we wanted to be there. We wanted to show them that we were uh, offering our services to cook at an event or whatever. So, um, yeah, there was so many different things that we were doing, but it became um, part of our DNA was we had to be in the community. That was terribly important to us. And of the 45 locations, you may not want to uh, admit it or say it out loud, but which concept do you think would be your favorite? Oh, goodness, no, that's like, which is my favorite child? We did, <laughs> we did some fantastic concepts with some fantastic, you know, I would, it's, it's just impossible to say. We, we, we were very, very lucky to have incredibly supportive owners. We had amazing people of our own. I mean, we worked with some great third-party uh, operators as well, but um, the people, the, the, the chefs that we had, the restaurant managers, the sommeliers, the bartenders, I mean, they had so much passion. And the food and beverage directors, 
They, they worked so hard. They, they studied. They went out to eat. Uh, whenever I would visit a hotel, you know, we would always go, we'd eat two or three restaurants a night looking at what was happening in the busiest and the best, right? Uh, the GM would come, the F&B director, the chef. We would all go out, the catering director, and we would just soak it all up. Um, what are they doing? And, um, uh, how can we do this as well as they are doing it, you know? And so... Um, we did it. We did some really, really cool and fun concepts, and it wasn't always just about you know steakhouse here, Italian there, Japanese there. Sometimes it was about a chef-led concept, but we just added layers of uh, drama to the experience. So the guest was coming in, and from a design perspective, oh wow, look at this! This is extraordinary. And then they would look at the beverage menu, and you know, uh, I remember when we opened the. The restaurant in Vancouver in uh, U, it was called U, Y-E-W. It's another story altogether. But um, <laughs> we said to the, 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 the restaurant man- manager, uh, I said to him, because I'd learned this from one of the corporate guys that was helping to, to open the, the restaurant with us, John Washko, another fantastic guy. And John had said, hey, when you open the restaurant, I, I saw this really cool thing once. He said, why don't you offer any bottle on the wine list? You'll open any bottle on the wine list by the glass. They just have to buy two glasses. And if it's a six-ounce pour, that's basically half the bottle gone. Right? And back in those days, you had you know, the vacuum program, so you sucked all the air out of the bottle, and you, it would last for a couple of weeks, and then people would come in, and they would see this amazing uh, wine by the glass program with some really big bottles that have been opened and they were available by the glass. Now you've got the Coravin system, so it's it's even better. So, you know, we were doing cool things like that. And again, I was surround yourself by the best people and just learn from them. And then if they if they suggest something, just do it better. Not do it better, just try and do it as well and make sure it's consistently done day in, day out, day in, day out, so that you never drop a beat. And Guy, what are you working on here now in present day? Well, I'm, I'm fortunate to be working actually with the Raffles Hotel Group. They're opening up a, um, a new hotel in Boston. That's the first time Raffles have come to uh, North America. And that's a very, very exciting project with a big food and beverage operation. So um, we expect to open that hotel in August of this year. We've got a fantastic GM there and a great F&B team. Chef is a chap called George Mendes, who had a Michelin restaurant, Michelin star for his restaurant Aldera in New York. But he's a, he grew up in New England, and he's from Portugal, and so we're doing a Portuguese restaurant there. I just had two-week vacation in Portugal, which was uh, amazing. So, And I, I have a, a client that I've been working with down in uh, Virginia, a lovely country house hotel called the George's Inn in Lexington, Virginia. And I've been the consultant to the owner of sort of asset managing that property for about uh, six years now. Uh, and it's a very charming country inn, 33 guest rooms, and the guest rooms are in four different buildings. And we've got a sort of upscale pub, and we've got a very, very lovely restaurant with a, with a, a French chef, actually. He doesn't do French cuisine, but he's a French chef, and he used to work at Truffles Restaurant at Four Seasons Toronto many, many, many years ago. And he's a super guy, Xavier Deshay. So I work, I've been working with them, asset managing that property. And I, I do work, I've been doing some work for clubs here in uh, Toronto, helping them sort of understand and figure out their food and beverage, how to 
uh, become a bit more profitable, how to increase the, prog- the, the service programs for their guests. Yeah, all sorts of different things pop up all the time. It's, uh, it's fantastic to be in a consulting role and be able to sort of turn your hand to different things. One minute I'm you know, helping open a luxury branded hotel in Boston. Next minute I'm working on a, in a luxury 33-room boutique hotel in Virginia. Next minute I'm working with a golf club. And so it's, uh, it's a very different job to what I used to be doing. Um, I, I certainly miss those days with Four Seasons, but I was on an airplane an awful lot. I didn't have as much time with my kids growing, watching them grow up. And so I was fortunate at that time to be able to make that switch. Looking back on your career, would you have done anything differently? No, no. Um, As I said at the beginning of this chat, uh, I had originally wanted to be a lawyer. And that's because the old-fashioned sort of Harry Potter-style school that I went to. Yeah. said, you know, well, you're going to, going to go, go into the law, or you're going to become a doctor, or you're going to go to the Army or the Navy or the Air Force, and, and the hotel business was not on the list. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, I thought, well, you know, I was good at debating, right? Um, okay. So I was the captain of the debating society back in those days, and uh, I thought, well, let's try this. It's sort of akin to being a lawyer. Uh, but that, uh, as I say, you had to pass a lot of exams to do that, and I uh, wasn't terribly good at passing exams. So, <laughs> as a, a very dear friend of mine, he was the banquet manager at the Pierre in New York, Paul Nikai, such an amazing gentleman, a great sense of humor. And Paul said to me once, um, you know, we've done all right serving chicken for a living, haven't we? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a bit of a euphemism. It's a bit of a euphemism, but it's actually uh, pretty true. We've been fortunate to um, take care of people. So my father was a doctor, my mother was a midwife. Two professions that uh, a much higher calling, in my opinion, than being uh, in the hotel business. And, and you actually really do have to be very smart to be a, a, a sort of doctor that my dad was. He was incredibly clever. And my mother was the kindest person in the world. Um <laughs> And so um, we have, I'm always considered myself to be very lucky that my job has been to take care of wonderful employees who, who you just come to, you get to know them and you love them and, and, and they're going out on the front line and taking care of your guests. And then most of the time, the guests are turning around saying, well, we love you. We've had a wonderful experience. We had a great party. We had a great dinner. We had a great stay at the hotel. Thank you very much indeed. What a great life. Yeah. <laughs> and then for the last day, for the last, and, and you know, I bounced around the world from England to Texas to Tokyo to Toronto to Bangkok to New York to Vancouver to all over the, the world and yeah. friends in different cultures and different places. And then, you know, in the, the food and beverage role, going to so many different cities and so many different areas of North and South America. And I, I'm, I'm truly blessed to have done what I've done, and I'm still loving every second of it. So um, it's, not a, it's not a job for, the, for folks who want a, a, a weekends off and they don't want to work in the evenings. You've got to be committed, and mm-hmm. you've got to be in it. If you don't love it, you're not passionate about it, don't do it. Because you, yeah. you, you won't be successful if you're just not loving every second of it. Sure. Uh, but luckily, I, I loved it. 
What advice would you give to a smart, driven student coming out of school who wants to be like you one day? I've sort of said this just in the last um, sentence. You've got to be passionate. Yeah. You've got you. If you're passionate about something, you, then you'll you'll study it. You'll you'll. It's like a you know, if you're the best golfer in the world, you're playing golf every day, and you're you're taking golf lessons, and you're improving every part of your golf swing. And if you want to work with an amazing organization like Four Seasons or uh, Mandarin or Peninsula or Fairmont or Raffles or uh, Ritz-Carlton, any of these amazing brands, right, then you've got to hone your skills so your skills are better than somebody else's. But I think the most critical thing, and it was taught to me by uh, Four Seasons, was take care of your people. If you know how to be a great leader, you know how to get the best out of your people and you can inspire them, then I think you can do anything, right? Because you surround, surround yourself with great people. Make sure that you're doing something that you're passionate about. You've got to be passionate about the hotel and restaurant business. And it could be in, in, in marketing, it could be in food and beverage, or it could be in the, the guest room side, it could be in engineering. I mean, or finance. There are so many different arms uh, to the hotel business, and they're all equally as essential as one another. And if you're passionate about that, you're passionate about people, uh, and you all you surround yourself by people who are smarter than you, then then and you've got a little bit of luck along the way, then then you can then you can have a great career. Well, Guy, I want to say thank you so much for coming on to the Titans of Food Service podcast and sharing your story. And I know there's going to be a lot of people out there that resonate with this. So thank you. And, and I appreciate you uh, being vulnerable and, and uh, sharing all about your life. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Great pleasure, and, and, uh, so thank Great you. pleasure Nick. I'm delighted to share that with you. So thank you. Thank you.